Hello and welcome to Lodcast, a show for in-house lawyers and professionals around the world. My name is Mark Dodd and I'm the head of Market Insights at LOD, a pioneer of alternative legal services. In this episode, we dive into the topic of leading through times of uncertainty and change, an evergreen but particularly salient issue for many in-house teams and their leaders. To explore this topic, I was thrilled to be joined by in-house legend and dinner party guest extraordinaire, Sterling Miller. Sterling is a legal renaissance man, a published author, a three-times general counsel, CEO, and among many other talents and passions, a lover of slow-cooked food. Many of you will know Sterling as the author of the wildly popular in-house legal blog, 10 Things You Need to Know as In-House Counsel. You can find links to Sterling's blog, books, and his bio in the show notes. Now, we couldn't fit all of Sterling's insights into just one episode, so stay tuned for part two of my interview with Sterling, where we focus on how in-house leaders can show the value of their legal team. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, Sterling. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about yourself? Sure. I Well, I'm a lawyer, probably not a surprise <laughs> to anyone. I grew up in Nebraska, which is right in the middle of the United States in a very small town where cows outnumbered people. I, I now live in Dallas, Texas, which is uh, where my wife is from. And we have two college-aged daughters. One's in law school, one's in getting a master's. We have several pets, dogs and cats. My career has been primarily as an in-house lawyer, almost 25 years with four different legal departments, three of which somehow I was, I, I was the person standing when the GC job was offered. So I was general counsel three times, but I have made the unusual trek from being in-house back to a law firm. And I am now the CEO and senior counsel, so I still do some legal work of a law firm called Hilger's Graben, does litigation and e-discovery and, and some corporate work, which I actually still enjoy doing. So I do I do a wee bit of that. I write a lot. I have a bunch of books. I write the blog, 10 Things You Need to Know as in-house counsel. I also do some other freelance writing for various entities that ask me to write for them. So I, I thoroughly enjoy the writing part. And I'm, I guess I'm good at it because I can do it really quickly. And I, I guess that's a superpower that not everyone has. So there you go. That's, that's me in a nutshell. Brilliant. And we're, we're really excited to, to have you on the show today. You have a lot of fans at LOD. We, we love your blog and I personally have used it many times as a, as a resource. So why don't we look at that first? So before we get into the substance of the episode, which is all about navigating and leading through times of of change and uncertainty. Why don't we start with your the blog, 10 Things. I imagine a lot of listeners will know it. Do you want to perhaps tell us a bit about the genesis of 10 Things and where, where it's at now? Sure. So I was very fortunate in 2014, the company that I was general counsel for, Sabre Holdings, had an IPO. And I was at the point in my career where I could walk away. And I actually retired which feels weird given how much work I've been doing afterwards, but I did retire once. And I, my very last day, I was speaking at a conference. And afterwards, they had a cocktail party, which you always want to go to the cocktail party, which is, which is great. And 
several young in-house lawyers came up to me and they were asking me all these questions about how do I become general counsel? Or if I want to do this, what would you recommend that I do? And like anyone who's had a couple of vodka and sodas in them, I started pontificating about, well, you should do this, you should try this. And they were writing it down on napkins, scraps of paper, post-it notes, whatever. And I was surprised by that, but also intrigued because I thought if anyone should write down my experience as being an in-house lawyer, it should be me. And I decided to create a blog and I modeled it after something that I had done as general counsel. Whenever we had an issue, we didn't know what to do with. And this will betray my age. I would call people into a conference room and I would say, let's whiteboard 10 things we need to know about this. Go. And we would just brainstorm and start writing down, well, we're going to need to do this. We're going to need to talk to this person. And I took that concept and I decided I was going to build my blog on the same, the same parameter. So I would pick a topic and then I would write down 10 things I think in-house lawyers need to know about it and hopefully passing on some of the wisdom of you know, that long career in-house. And the very first one came out in November of 2014. And I thought if I could get 100 people to read this, 100 followers, that would be great. I'll do it for a year. I'll get bored with it. You know, if my mom reads it, that's great. So I had, I had low bar and I never imagined in, in, beyond whatever, whatever goes beyond wildest dreams. So I don't even know what that category puts you in that it, I would still be writing it uh, and it would still be, it would still be popular. So I, I, my shelf life has not expired yet. Someday it will, and I'll hang up the cleats. But right now I have a lot, still a lot more to write about. And we're going into year nine which is, again, just amazes me. Wow. And, and it really is, is a rich vein of insight. Now, I'm potentially putting on the spot here, but do you know how many articles you've got on there now? Close to 160. I haven't looked. I have to do an in. I'm really lazy wow. yeah. in a lot of ways, <laughs> and especially when it comes to the website. And I keep promising to do a real index. Right now, it just goes by year. and But I can see the total when I post, because there's a when you go into the tool, it shows you how many articles. So it's right around, right around 160 that are on there. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that's 10 things per article. Oh, I wanted to, wanted to ask you, how did you come up with the number 10? Or is it just a nice round number? Certainly in the States. I'm not sure <clears throat> down under, it's the same thing. There's something nice around 10. There's a lot of top 10 lists. When I was in college, David Letterman was at his peak here at night, a late show host. And he had a top 10 list. So just that it's a nice round number. People are used to it, certainly here in the U.S. And literally, as I mentioned, I would pull people into the conference room and I would say, let's write down 10 things we need to know about this. So the, the, the lack of imagination shows. I just, I just cobbled it from someone else and stuck with the number 10. It could be three things or seven. And sometimes I wish it were three things because I'm struggling to get that 10th <laughs> one. I, damn, I should have called it nine things. You need to know. But Usually I, I have a breakthrough and we'll get to 10 no matter what. Well, brilliant. And as I said, it, it really is such a great resource and it's ha how we kind of got talking. But so today's episode is all about how in-house leaders in particular can navigate times of uncertainty and change. 
And I, I think that's your most recent article, or at least it was at the time I got in touch with you. <laughs> it was when you, when you reached out. The newest one was posted Friday, and that's on alternative fee arrangements. And I'm happy to talk about that too. Whatever, whatever you'd like to talk about, we'll, we'll throw on the table. <laughs> Well, we could talk until the Nebraskan cows come home, but we've got a we've got a time limit here. <laughs> See, so, so for many for many lawyers, in house lawyers, and leaders of in house teams, life is feeling a little little volatile, a little unsettled at the moment. There's inflation, various banking crises, there's sharpening geopolitical risks across Europe, Asia, basically everywhere, and and a lot of economies are looking at potential recessions. In this precarious environment, how can in house leaders help? to ensure that their team succeeds? I've kind of broken it down. I like to break things down in either the checklists or or other easy to remember mnemonics, whatever the case is. I think I would go with what I call the three, the three Ps. And that would be if I'm an in-house lawyer in a time of uncertainty and challenges like we are currently, and I've lived through lots of different ups and downs in the in the economic cycle. And I kind of anchor and come back to these things. So one, be proactive. Don't sit back and let and react to events, but what the business really wants, not just from the legal department, but from everybody in the business is to start to look around corners, see what's coming, make plans. Don't wait for events to force you to do things where there's an opportunity where you can plan on if this happens or I see this happening, what are we going to do? So the first P is be proactive. The second, be practical. And that is a really hard thing for a lot of lawyers to do because we're not trained to be practical in law school. We're trained to spot all the issues. We're trained to take all the, all the different things into account to try to come up with an answer or whatever the project is. And, and if, you, if you've spent time in a law firm, it's the same thing. As a young associate, they train you to, to turn over every rock. When you move in-house, it is a, it is a shock and maybe a, a, a pail of cold water, but that's not what they want. They want the opposite. And that is, what is the most practical thing we need to do? Give me an answer that works in the real world. Give me an answer that works with our budget, our manpower, whatever the case may be, whatever the limitations are of the business and, and help me find a path that, that makes sense and not anchor on some, why we call them law review answers that aren't based in the practical world. So second P is, uh, is be practical. And then the third is learn to prioritize properly. Lawyers are great at going off in the corner and thinking, this is a really cool issue and I'm going to dig in. And it probably is. A lot of lawyers went to law school because they're very curious. They like legal issues, like to turn them around, but that's not what the business wants. So align yourselves with the business and understand the business's priorities and then make sure what you are doing or the legal department as a whole, depending on what your role is, are those matching up and your priorities are the same as the business because the business is analyzing that economic environment and they have plans and they need you in lockstep with them and not five steps behind chewing on some really esoteric legal issue when they need a contract done. So understanding what the priorities are and aligning. If you do those three things, generally your ability to to not only survive but thrive in this uncertainty because the business will appreciate the things that you're bringing to the table brilliant and i wonder if we can dive a bit deeper into a couple of those because 
you know, I, I think a lot of lawyers hear these phrases about being proactive and, and prioritizing well. I wonder if we can double click into that and just explore a bit more how you how you do that because I think people understand I need to be proactive and as you say, look around the corner. How how did how did you as a as a three times GC? How did you how did you become pro- proactive? I think the, the, I, it's not something they teach you, right? In law school or even at the law firm necessarily, especially when in law firms, you're used to people just feeding you. I think the partners are more proactive than the the associates, the younger lawyers who are sitting around like baby chicks waiting for people to drop <laughs> things into their mouth. The smart ones, the really smart associates are proactive and they become the partners who, who are generating lots of business and keeping everyone fed. So that is um, something that I observed as a lawyer in a law firm. And when I moved in-house, uh, what I saw w- w- were a lot of people who had the same attitude of, well, I'll just wait for things to come my way. And I thought, well, you're missing. There's a lot of opportunity here. There's a lot of green space for people to own things, to step up if you just ask. And I knew from a very young point in my career, I wanted to be general counsel. I wanted to be the top person. And so when I went in-house, one of the first things I did is just look around and go, how do you get ahead? Not by trampling on people, not by being devious, not by being some cartoon villain, but what are the things that I can do to really make myself more valuable to the company? And if I saw something that no one else wanted, I would raise my hand and go, can I do that? Can I help with that? And that's how I learned how to do budgeting. No one wanted to do budgeting. Budgeting is a crappy task, but it's important. And there's a ton of insights you can get when you are actually working on the budget for the legal department and how all those numbers and the priorities are going are gonna to fit together. So raising your hand and asking became something that I really thrived on. And as I became, as I moved up and I became the leader of the litigation and regulatory section, um, I told my team, I had several lawyers who worked for me, we are going to be the garbage men of the legal department. If someone doesn't want it, they're putting it out on the curb. We're going to drive by and pick it up. And we had, even though we were litigation and regulatory, we had government affairs, we had immigration, we had employment, we had bankruptcy, contests, sweepstakes, anything no, anything anyone didn't want, we took because that makes you more valuable. That gives you a broader perspective. And then when the opportunities came, not only for me, but a number of people who have worked for me are now general counsel they had a very broad perspective of the business and how you react and how you deal with different things. So for me, it was just kind of naturally a way of how am I going to get ahead with all these talented people? Oh, I can just volunteer to, I'll run the website. I'll do these tasks that no one else wants to do and finding value and showing value by doing that. That's really how I realized the the need to be proactive and why that really mattered. Then you can just take that. Once you start doing that daily, you start to see opportunities within the business. You can volunteer to be on strategic planning committees. You can you can be part of charitable associations. There's all kinds of ways that you can be proactive and make yourself a more valuable partner to the business. And it's really just looking around and, and seizing those because they're they're there. They're there today just like they were, you know, 25 years ago when I started. Brilliant. Thank thanks for that insight. That's I think it's helpful to add a little bit more color because I think people can often 
hide behind words like proactive because it's it's quite abstract. But I think that that's really helpful in giving a bit more detail. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. One of the things I realized as a young in-house lawyer is you will get lots of advice that are were one or two words, like Sterling, you need to be more strategic. And lawyers, because we don't want to admit we don't know something, will simply nod their head and go, yes, hmm, stroke their chin, more strategic, you got it. And they'll go up, go out of the room. I have no idea what they're talking about. That was me. And I learned to get over that and be more humble. And I don't know everything. And if someone asks me or tells me something, give me an example. How would I do that? How, what, what do you see being more strategic? For example, how can I, how can I accomplish that? How can I do that? And a lot of lawyers just take the word and go, okay, be more practical. All right, great. I'm going to be more practical, but they don't think it through and they don't ask the right questions. And that's one of the things that I wanted to do with the blog is how how can I truly get started on this topic? And when I write about the, the, the blogs on practical legal skills, you know, those are great. Like, how do I do an early case assessment? The ones that I really get a lot of feedback from and a lot of, a, a lot of comments on are when I, when I write about how to be practical, how to be strategic, uh, how to show the value of the legal department, because people are going, hallelujah, no one's ever told me that. They don't teach it. They expect it, but no one tells you how. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why the blog has remained popular is because I can, I, I have the experience, usually through failure, of going, yeah, okay, here's how you do that. Here are some examples, and maybe here are some additional resources that you can that you can use. Well, that was a long answer. I hope we're over that. No, no, I liked it. Well, the other the other P that I wanted to quickly talk about was prioritization. Because I think that is the way I kind of think about it is what are you overlaying to, to make the decision? So obviously you have organizational priorities, you have legal duties, you will have budget restrictions. Is there, and obviously, well, not obviously, but a lot of people talk about the Eisenhower prioritization matrix. But again, I, I kind of find that quite simplistic. Like I think it's quite obvious to not do the non-important, not urgent stuff and do the urgent, important stuff. I don't find uh, heaps of insight in that. But I, I'm more interested in when you were a GC, what were the main considerations that were factoring into your prioritization? Yes, great question. I agree that the two-by-two two matrix, the Eisenhower matrix is, is simplistic. And it's easy for you as an individual lawyer to plot things where you think they belong. And that's the problem, in my opinion, is too often, and I, again, raising my hand, this was me, plotting what you think is important and urgent is okay, but if it doesn't match with what the business thinks is important and urgent, then you've, you've in a way, you've failed because there's going to be a disconnect between the things that you are giving a lot of attention to and what the business wants you to give a lot of attention to. And when that dawned on me early in my first general counsel position is that, wait a minute, are we really working on the right things here? My solution was pretty simple. I'm just going to ask. And I would go to the senior leaders of the business every Monday morning. And I would say, what are your two priorities for the legal department this week? Some people would ignore me. Some people would give me 10. <laughs> Most people would respond with one or two or maybe three. 
But I started to get an insight into what the leaders of the business wanted the legal department to focus on. And then I could take that and go back to my team and ask, is anyone working on this? Where is this on our priority list? And if someone had it, maybe it was on an Eisenhower box. Oh no, that's unimportant and not urgent. Like well, maybe we need to move that up to the, to the right quadrant because we need to focus on what the business thinks is important. And the key is not only getting that information. And then every Friday, I would go back to those same people and I would say, here's, a, here's an update on where your project is. Sometimes it's, it's underway. Sometimes we got it done. Sometimes I wouldn't even wait till Friday. I would go back and I would say, look, my guys are telling me for your team, these are the most important projects. Do you want us to swap anything out? I'm happy to take this and put it into the pile higher, but that means something has to drop. There's no unlimited legal resource. There's no unlimited number of hours and time. And I would partner with the business leaders to make the decision as to what's the most important. Sometimes they would say, yeah, you know what? Those actually are more important. So just save this. Or sometimes, yeah, I know that's important, but this is more important. Put this to the top of the pile. So it gave direction to the legal department to me on what the priorities were and what we what we really and truly needed to focus on. And, and that alignment with the business. One of the, one of the really interesting things is when I started doing that is a lot of the business leaders said, you know, I've been in business for whatever, 20 years, 30 years. I've never had a lawyer ask me that. I've never had a lawyer ask me what the priorities are for me. And I found that to be shocking. So I don't know if I just intuitively figured that out or, or what that is number one in terms of, you know, being, getting those priorities It's just asking what is the most important thing to the business and then acting on it. Yeah, I love that because I think it's 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 something that well it makes a lot of sense. But also probably, you know, if you're a, a shy person or you know you're you're quite focused on the law, that's something that you wouldn't do. And to your point, that's probably a little bit shocking because you should be asking these senior leaders. So and, and then just not not to dive too into the detail, but that's like emailing like your CFO, your head of sales, like those different department functions. Or functions, I guess. Yes. Yes. And the other thing uh, on top of that, not only in those emails is I started to ask, can I sit in on some of your staff meetings or your sales, your weekly sales call where they're going through the, the development pipeline of deals? First question was, are we in trouble? No, you're not in trouble. I just would like to know what you are working on because that can help me prioritize when the people that I have working for me are working on contracts, I have a real-time access to where the deal flow is. And if we're working on deals that I'm sitting in that meeting and I go, wow, I know we're working on this contract, but they're telling me we're 90 days away from signing here, here in, the, in, the, in the business meeting. But there's another deal over here that this is going to hit in a week and we're not thinking about it or working on it. I need to go reorder their priorities all from just asking, can I sit in on your meeting? And sometimes you just learn things about the business, you raise the flag for the legal department, you develop relationships between you and the business, which all of those are, are positive. And every once in a while, you spot an issue that you can solve early before it becomes a problem. Because the worst problem to have is one you could have solved six months ago if you had just been told about it. And I always, because those problems that happened six months ago, they always happen at five 
p.m. on a Friday, just as everyone's walking to go out the door, then all you know the world just explodes. So there's lots of benefits from being proactive and speaking with the business, not just in prioritizing, but, but a lot of other things as well. Brilliant. Well, I, I love those three pre, uh, those three P's. Sorry, proactive, practical, prioritizational to prioritize. Um, in your article, I was one thing that stood out to me is you because obviously you have ten tips. One was around huddle meetings. I wonder if you could expand on that tactic. Yes. Well, there are two types of huddle meetings. The the one in the in the latest article was m- more around staying aligned, huddled together as a team. So making sure you're communicating with each other. This is when times are are tough and uncertain, and there are you know, things are strained, budgets are potentially in trouble, etc. So you're huddling together just as a way of surviving this as, as, a, as a unit. The other type of huddle meetings, and the one I'm really interested in, I've written, I've written on this, is what I, I learned from the technology teams. I worked for a lot of tech companies. And the technologists would have what they call scrum or a stand-up meeting where they would get together. They would literally get together every day and they would have 15 minutes where they would go through what was going on. I adapted that for the legal department and we did it three times a week and it would be Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And it would be, what am I working on today? Am I having any problems getting done the things that I need to get done? Are there roadblocks and can someone help me get over that? And third, do I have time to help someone else? If you cover those three things on a regular basis, and you marry that with knowing what the business priorities are because I'm asking and I'm in communication or whoever, maybe even the, the lawyers who work for me are, you have a real-time ability to adjust on the fly. You have a real-time ability to shift work. And if someone's slow, you can have them take on things that someone else is overloaded with. But if you wait until the end of the month, like most legal departments do, you have a big staff meeting and you go around the table and you tell everyone all the things you're working on, A, it's very boring. And, and B, it's useless, right? Because if I had known this three weeks ago, I could have helped you, but I, you know, waited until the end of the end of April. So that huddle meeting, that value of that type of huddle meeting is incredible. And it's very short and it's not a discussion about all the things you're doing. It's what's my priority for today. What's blocking my progress. And can I, do I have time to help someone else? And if you do that, man, I, I think the productivity level in the department's going to go up. People's ability to prioritize properly is going to go up and people are going to appreciate short meetings versus longer meetings because we're all stuck in those long meetings and they truly suck. No matter where you are in the world, long meetings suck. So it doesn't matter. US, Australia, UK, Brazil, short meetings are the way to go. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I guess that, I mean, to, to kind of play that back, I, the, in times of uncertainty and change, the I guess the alignment and getting together and the, I guess somewhat of a camaraderie point, and then yes, the, the kind of the, sec, the kind of second conception is the the way you were doing a scrum meeting to to, to keep everyone on track, right? And, and they and they they can they can be the same meeting. It's a lot around you know what just checking on someone. If someone's struggling, you know, you'll know that in that huddle meeting, that technical huddle meeting as much as you would in a kind of a group hug huddle meeting. They're both important. And I think if you're the leader of a legal department and, and things are tough and strained, which 
They may just be every day, depending on on the business you're in. Bringing the team together, making sure they know they're not lawyers are solitary animals generally, but there's way more power in the herd. So bringing people together, making sure they understand they're not alone. They can ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness to go. I am overwhelmed. I need some help with this versus just burning yourself out going, well, I'm going to work 14 hours today and seven days a week for the next three months. It, you, you will die if you do that. <laughs> and you don't want people dying because A, you got to go to a funeral and B, it's hard to replace them. So lots of negatives for, for people keeling over in the legal department. You just, you don't want that happening. Absolutely not. So another thing in, in, in your article, I wanted to just focus in on for a little bit was you talk about being transparent with budget cutting because obviously at the moment, quite a few legal teams will be going through some sort of budget cutting process. You said get involve your team in those discussions, and that that struck me as quite an interesting. I'm not, not I'm not saying radical, but it was quite an interesting point. I was wondering, what's your view? Why does involving people help with that process? Yes. So my experience, first experience with the budget is there's a basically the general counsel goes off, goes up to the mountain and brings down a couple stone tablets with the budget. And that's what everybody lives with. And you look at the budget sometimes and you go, how did you get to that number? That makes no sense. We have to do this, this, and this. And the problem that I saw is the general counsel or whoever was doing the budget, they just weren't getting input from everyone. They were just going off kind of the same thing this is what I think is important. This is what I think we need to spend money on and not really aligning with all the true priorities and all the true needs within the legal department. So when I had the opportunity to start doing budgets, and certainly when I was in charge of budgets, I want to get everyone's viewpoint, right? From the paralegals to the admins to the lawyers, you know, what is it that we need to spend money on and tell me what you need tell me what you want, then I'll probably come back and go, tell me what you need. But let's start with what you want and let's build the budget up from across the entire legal department. And when you do that, everyone feels invested. Everyone feels heard. And when you come back with the numbers and they've had, a, they've had the opportunity to have input and even as a group walking through, this is going to be the budget and here's why everyone can go, okay, I understand. I know why I didn't get you know, $100,000 for this project because there were other priorities. But if you don't tell people that and you just, if they feel like they're just ignored and they don't have a say, it's not a great feeling. It's not a great experience. And it's so easy just to say, I need your help. Let's get in the room. Let's whiteboard what the budget's going to be. And that's what I would do when it came budget season. And we blocked out the conference room. We had a giant whiteboard. We had all the different things from litigation to corporate to office supplies. What do we need for office supplies? Because that's all in the budget. And you know, we need to go and make a case for all these different things. And that was really the genesis of let's get everyone involved. And the response to doing that was, wow, this is great. I, I actually have some input in what the budget is going to be. And then I understand when it comes back, you know, how things get settled, how things get cut, but at least I had a chance to weigh in. And that's, I think that's incredibly valuable. And you learn, so as the general counsel, I learned a lot just from listening to people. 
what do you what do you want? What do you need? Why is it important? Explain that to me. And then I have a better sense for what's going on with my team. And, you know, maybe not this year, but let's put it in the budget for next year, right? It gives you the ability to plan over the longer term as well. I love that. I think that that kind of openness would be so well received. And, and I think what's nice, as you say, it, it, it helps you as well. It's not just about helping them. It helps the leader make a better budget. Yeah, I was, I was usually the dumbest person in the room is my experience. <laughs> there's so many more, there's so many smarter people here, but I have the talent to organize things. So I mean, that's one of my other superpowers is just organization and bringing things together. So I'm going to use that, but you guys, you know, you, these smart people help me figure this out. And I think being humble enough to recognize that not only was good for me because I learned a lot. But I think it's appreciated by people on the team and even in the business that here's a lawyer that doesn't think they know it all. And a lot of that bravado that you get from lawyers is I can't, I can't show that I don't know something. And then you try to you know, just bluster your way through it and overwhelm them with old English terms and Latin, uh, <laughs> which everybody hates. So I tried not to do that. Brilliant. I think it's great. And the other thing in your article is you talk about, you list a number of soft skills to, to boost during this time. So active listening, approachability, EQ, problem solving, et cetera. You listed quite a few. I was wondering if you had to prioritize three of these, which I know is a tough question, but <laughs> which would you, which would you select? Uh, I, that is a great question. I would pick approachability as number one. Because most business people envision the lawyers as something different than the rest of the company. And I think the best way to show value, the best way to get integrated into the business is to have the business want you to be part of the team. And if you're approachable, if you feel like they can ask you questions, you're not going to yell at them, you're not going to talk down to them that's going to encourage them to come to you. It's going to encourage them to pull you in. And that's when the job, in my opinion, gets really fun when you're really, truly part of the team. And they view you as part of the team, not just this annex over here in the basement, cranking out contracts and, and dealing with lawsuits. Learning to listen, to really listen to what the clients are asking. And I'm terrible at this. I have, have to work at this still all the time. And that is to just be quiet and listen to what the business is telling you and not think you know the answer within the first five words that come out of the person's mouth. My habit, and I know this is true for a lot of people, is you, you, once they start talking, you're already off trying to solve the problem. But you don't really know what the problem is because you haven't heard it yet. And you're kind of tuning out because you think you know. And then off you go doing whatever it is you want to do. And you come back and you realize you've missed. You, you, you just swung and missed. It's a waste of time. It's annoying to the client. And it's really a disservice. So if you can have that, that active listening skill, not only does it help you do a better job, it also makes you someone that people want to talk to, which is a, very, which is a level of, I guess, business intimacy where... They just want to talk to you and explain things to you and ask, ask for your help. And if they find you as, a, as, a, as an active listener, it's almost a way of therapy, I guess, right? They can come to the lawyers and unload on whatever this issue is. And you're just listening, right? Nodding along, doing those things. So that's number two. And then being flexible. Flexibility 
uh, and being able to roll with the changes, not insist on your way as the only way to do things, to see what's out there. How can I, you know, how can I adapt to this? That would be my, that would be my third pick. So those, those are my top three. I'm sure others would probably have things that they would put up on top, but that's, that's what I would focus on. Amazing. Still, that's, I mean, this is just so full of insight. I don't know where to go next, but we might call this the end of part one because okay. this is, we ple- we'll be pleased to hear there's part two. But before we move on to the next episode, which will be on showing the value of the legal department, do you think there's anything key that we missed around the topic of how in-house leaders can navigate you know, times of uncertainty and change? Yeah, I, I, it will get better. No matter how, I mean, I was in-house at a travel company after 9-11 and it's hard to imagine the bottom any further than the bottom was in our business in October of 2000, 9-11, I'm sorry. And if you understand that no matter what happens, you will get through it. I, I think keeping that, that level of hope, that level of positivity, and certainly that we need to stick together. We need to huddle up, whatever you want to call it, is probably the one thing I would leave everyone with. So even if times are tough, it, it's not going to last forever. And even if your career takes you somewhere else, you know, I've watched people, you know, be let go for no reason other than just the economics of the company. They have always landed on their feet in a, I would say, in a better place take those skills that they learned. And it may take a month or two, right? Scary not to have a job, but you will get one if you want one. There, there will always be a place for, for legal talent, in my opinion. And you, so don't despair when times are rough. Just you know, push through it and better days are ahead, no matter what. Brilliant. Well, Thanks so much, Sterling. That's been a fantastic episode. And I'll just leave you to say thank you so much for part one. And we'll chat again very soon. All right. Great. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it very much. <laughs>